Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Welcome back to There's No Business Like. Uh, Josh Benson, and I'm here with my friends, Katie. Hey, everyone. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Brian. Hey, Brian Zelmer from KU Presents. Danielle. Hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. And Kevin. Kevin Maynard with Quad City Arts. Well, uh, this week, I want to ask you guys, what is your favorite spirit or alcoholic drink, if if you drink, um, which I know all of you do, but... Um, what is your favorite go-to whenever you're out for an evening uh, engaging with a hang? I don't really have a drink of choice other than occasionally. Well, that's not true because I love mudslides. It's a mudslide. I do love mudslides. <laughs> but when I'm out drinking, I usually just say, oh, what are you having? And I'll share. I'll do the same thing as someone, whoever's next to me. Either that or a mudslide. Mudslide, yeah. That, I love it. <laughs> that seems so fitting. I don't like frozen mudslides, though. It has to be the old-fashioned mudslide on, on the rocks. It just feels like that fits you so well, so well, Brian, along with a tin of butter cookies. I agree. <laughs> can't, can't disagree with that. <laughs> I'll go next. Um, I, uh, of course, being from Michigan, uh, I'm a huge supporter of the Michigan alcohol scene. So love a good Michigan beer or a glass of Michigan wine. Um, I know we have friends that will disagree that there's quality wine that comes out of Michigan. But trust me, friends, especially from the uh, greater Traverse City area, you need to try it. Uh, if we're talking spirits, I love a good margarita. I really enjoy tequila um, and have been known to have a good number of margaritas on a girl's night out with some friends. I really thought you were going to say Michigan tequila and I was like, just get <laughs> there's, out. There's no Michigan tequila. There's a line. <laughs> well, I guess I'll go. My, it depends. I love a good local IPA, but sometimes I really do like a good scotch, like a Akintosh and Three Wood is my go-to lately. Gazootet. <laughs> I'm with Katie on the spirits. I do love a good margarita. I can have like a different fruit in it. That's, that's fun. Um, and I also like the salt on the rim. Uh, that is, that really, that really seals the deal for me, but nine times out of 10, I'm going to choose a champagne <laughs> and then I'll say champagne for my good friends, real pain from a champagne. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of bourbon and, uh, our guest today has a podcast himself called bourbon and banter. Um, but then he is also the operations and artistic director of Jazz St. Louis. So on to our conversation with Bob Bennett. Hi, this is Bob Bennett. I'm the uh, artistic director and director of operations for Jazz St. Louis in St. Louis, Missouri. Well, thanks for joining us, Bob. Thanks for having me. People can't see your beautiful beard from behind the uh, the mic like I can, but we appreciate you and your beard showing up today. <laughs> you're, cer you're certainly welcome. You're too kind. Thank you. How did you first get interested in the arts? Where did where did that come from for you? My cousin Joe was a saxophone player. When I was maybe eight, nine years old, Joe started playing saxophone. I wanted to be like Joe. So when I was 10, I started playing saxophone so I could be like Joe. And it took, and I, that's really where, I mean, I had done, I think, drums previously. My mother Just had like always in wanted me. Yeah, and, and yeah, well, they, at that time, and I was on the East Coast in, I'm from Corning, New York originally. And they would start kids in first grade. 
with music. I think my mom wanted me to play guitar. Well, they didn't teach guitar. I said, what do you want? Drums. Yeah, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that'll annoy the hell out of my parents. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I started with drums, but then I did a little bit of guitar, a little bit of piano. Nothing ever really stuck until Joe started playing saxophone. And so that's really where I latched onto it from the time I was 10. And I'm 47 now, so yeah. You still play I I still own a saxophone. (laughs) I play very, very sparingly. I I can still play. I just, with the way that my schedule is, and then with the pandemic hitting, it's just, it was not, it's not something. When you work around, like, the greatest musicians in the world and the greatest saxophone (laughs) players in the world... Unless you can do something at a really top level, you're kind of it's it's kind of discouraging to think about picking up the horn. So I do I do rock saxophone stuff now. If I if I do something, it's most likely playing Bruce Springsteen's music. Well, that's still a lot of fun. That is very much a lot of fun. Yes, it is for me. Well, that's a great start into the arts. But is there like a certain experience or a certain time where you decided that the business end of this industry was where you were going to land? When I got into college, I had left high school, got into college. My first year in college, I was planning on, on doing this. And I said, well, what can I do? I'll be a band director. I discovered after, during that first year that playing European classical saxophone was really not something I wanted to do. <laughs> it's like I really didn't have the desire to be a, a, a high school band director. I said, but I, I can't be a jazz musician. I mean, how am I going to make a living doing, <laughs> doing that? So I left that university, went and tried to do chemistry. And I wasn't very good at it. It was, re- it was really hard. And I'm like, well, how, how can I find a way to make my living doing jazz? I, I, at that time, I called up uh, Brett Stamps, who was the director of jazz studies at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. And Brett, that's where I had been the first year out of college. I had left and gone to a, a, a local community college for a couple of years. And it's there when I decided, okay, I want to try to figure this out to do music. So I called Brett. I said, Brett, what can I do with a degree in jazz performance? And Brett talked to me for like 45 minutes to an hour, going through all these various things, teaching collegiately, you know, playing. It's like, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not out of the realm of things to to say that you can do this as a living, you know, if you, if you put your mind to it and put the effort in on it. And in that conversation is when it's like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And, and that, so conversations like that are so integral because knowledge of what roles there are to, to play in the business industry, in the business side, on presenting side, logistical side of the music industry so many people don't know about. They've got a passion for music, but know that they can't make it as a musician, and then that's just the end of it for them. And this was really him giving me an outline of, with mainly focusing on teaching collegiately. And I got my undergraduate in jazz performance from SIU Edwardsville. I went to get my master's. When I got my master's, within the first two months that I started my master's work, I got into radio at a jazz station there. I started working there, because I was tired of hearing all the bad programming that was on the station. It's like, well, the, the guy's like, well, come down and do something about it. I said, yeah, okay. You know, I, I'll t- I, n- I had no radio experience, no nothing. There I started uh, DJing. I started working with a legendary disc jockey by the name of Leo Cheers, the man in the red vest, who was a, a legend in, in St. Louis broadcasting and in jazz broadcasting, knew all the musicians. Working with him and working in that medium and seeing how quickly I could pick it up, 
led me to believe my future's gonna be in radio. So I went through, I got my, my graduate degree in performance. I actually stopped putting the effort in on the horn because I was focused more on the business aspect of radio. Mm -hmm. I thought that was where I was gonna, my career was gonna be in radio. Uh, and radio took a big, you know, downturn that really didn't happen. So I, but I, but because I was in radio, I could come to shows at what was then Jazz at the Bistro for free. And I lived there for a year. I was just at every show. I came to hear everybody. I just hung out all the time. And when the position opened up, uh, in operations, because there were just two people, at that time, there was the executive director and the operations person. Their operations person was leaving to pursue a career in law. That opened up. I'd been around. I just kind of slid in there, fully thinking that I was going to be doing radio. And I would do this for a little bit, but I, ultimately I wanted to do radio. The first two months I was at Jazz St. Louis, I had um, my first opportunity to work with Joey DeFrancesco. I'm from a, a large Italian family. Joey is from a very large Italian family. I made some pasta sauce, some red sauce, because we used to have apartments across the street from the club. I was like, okay, well, we've got these apartments. We have refrigerators in there. We would always stock them with, <laughs> with food for musicians. Now, this is me at 25 years of old. My boss was in his early 30s. He was recently married. I was fresh out of college. We still had that college mindset. So we're like, okay, well, what do you put in the refrigerator for musicians? Well, get them something for breakfast. So eggs, bacon, white bread, American cheese, <laughs> cold cuts, get some mac and cheese. And so it, it, I'm, it, I'm embarrassed to think about what it was now. <laughs> and donuts, put all this stuff in there for the musicians. And that's a fully stocked fridge. And that's, yeah, that's all you need. That's what you need. And then you get dinner at the club. So, but I put, some of that homemade red sauce in there for DeFrancesco. And when he checked in, he comes to soundcheck the next day and he looks at his, his drummer, he says, is this the guy who made the sauce? And immediately we synced up. And in that week, I just spent the week hanging out with Joey and the trio going around to all the Italian places in town, just having, to, and then I'm like, yeah, okay, this is going to be, this is incredibly cool. And this is something that I can see. So that with. first experience that is what first really experience shaped it is for what you. really shaped it to be in the industry side of things like this. Mm -hmm. That first experience, because there were more after that, but that really was the first one, the bonding that, that Joey and I had. And we had that until his incredibly unfortunate passing this past summer, way too young. Mm -hmm. I mean, Joey and I were very close in age to each other, and uh, yeah, we we had a we had a ball that week and had a ball for the next twenty years. But th that moment was the one that said, "Okay, this industry side of things and presenting, that's where I'm going to be." So that's that's what landed you permanently, not permanently, but permanently up to this point at Jazz St. Louis. Yeah. I had through the radio thing, I just hung out. I was actually selling CDs for them. You know, I was like, well, he's always here. So yeah, I'd let Bob sell the merch and then we don't have to deal with it, you know? And so I just right place, right time. Yeah. You know, I graduated and, and, and merch is in the room there. I'm yeah. Yeah. So it's, it works, uh, it works out. I'm hanging out with all the musicians and, yeah. you know, right place, right time. And we went from a staff of two to now we're a staff of 15 full time and, another dozen plus part-time. So talk to artists. me about 
what Jazz St. Louis has become? Because I remember I remember it as Jazz at the Bistro. Yeah. So the 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 first iteration of what is now Jazz St. Louis started actually down at the Hotel Majestic. The Omni Hotel Majestic down at, at uh, 10th and Pine in downtown St. Louis. It was just the Hotel Majestic, and they had a restaurant there that was an L-shaped wood paneling. All it was a beautiful room, and the stage was at the at the end of the the middle section of that L. And they hired Barbara Rose to facilitate putting music in that room, and it became just jazz. She would book Ray Brown, other people come in there. She had you know contacts and friends that she built up in the industry over years and. And so when the Omni Hotel bought the Majestic Hotel, they said, well, you know, they looked at, the, at the, what they were doing with the restaurant. They said, this is not financially sustainable for us. So they eliminated the music. At that time, Grand Center owned the building here, what is Jazz St. Louis now. And they had had a number of restaurants in there. But with any restaurant in this Grand Center area, you are beholden to the schedule of what's happening around you. So if there's nothing happening at the Fox Theater or at the Symphony or at the Sheldon or wherever, you know, you're not getting business. And once the Fox show starts, that's it for business in the area in terms of restaurants. So they wanted something to come into the restaurant to drive business in. And they brought Barbara in. Peter Bunce was the um, president of the board of Grand Center at that time. And, and Peter worked with Barbara and brought Barbara in to start a jazz-presenting series modeled after what was happening down at Just Jazz. Initially, we were part of Grand Center. That first year, Jazz at the Bistro, which is what it became, it was the Bistro at Grand Center. That was the name of the of the uh, the restaurant. They said, we'll call it Jazz at the Bistro. That'll be the name of the music series. And Grand Center would financially, you know, be responsible for it. And she'd book the artists and they'd come in. They, they brought in sound, piano. And it's funny to me that we actually made those speakers work for almost 20 years. That is, <laughs> that is insane to me. The t- these little rams of speakers that first were put into a room that was mainly a piano trio room. Mm. You had piano trios. That's what Barbara was booking, a vocalist every now and then. You would hardly ever have a group that was larger than four. Maybe you'd have a quintet, but everything was basically acoustic. And you fast forward to the last shows in the club and you look at what was coming through at that time and it's shocking the transformation and and the different genres of jazz and styles that would come through and making them all work with those little speakers. So we were there for a year under Grand Center. Then they realized that we had to become our own independent 501c3. Um, So they broke off from Grand Center, established Jazz at the Bistro, as a 501c3. Barbara passed in uh, the fall of 98, and Gene uh, Bradford came in as the new executive director in 99. At that time, we started doing a few more uh, things with education and outreach. And we started taking the artists that would come in to the club out into schools and make it as part of the contract that we had for the week. The week would be for four nights at the club plus one educational outreach activity. So we made it a core part of our programming because we had to reach students and build a new audience for this. Well, so, and yeah, and then that's multifaceted. You're, you're serving the community and serving those schools by, by bringing something interesting in there. But at the same time, you're reinvesting in the future of your organization by creating fans from a young age. Correct. 
So when we first started doing it, not everybody was on board, but we did, you know, we'd get a, you know, six to 10 artists, you know, in the first year or two years and they'd go and we would basically load up the club's back line into a van, drive it to a school, put on a show in what we had termed a jazznasium at that time. You know, you'd have 500 kids listening to Jane Monheit, Joey DeFrancesco, Nicholas Payton, Tim Warfield, Terrell Stafford, all these people. And we started doing that, and then we that would be on a Thursday or Friday afternoon. Take the back line off the stage, take it out, do this, bring it back, do the shows. As we continued to grow that program, and we received support for that program from Emerson, uh, so it became the Emerson Jazz in Our Schools program, and we started to get secondary backline that we could take with us so we wouldn't have to tear down a stage. And we started making <laughs> That's it. That's incredibly helpful. Yeah, it's incredibly helpful. Standpoint. But it's, it's still us taking bands out into schools, yeah. which is great when you've got uh, them going out to do a clinic with you know a music program. If you're doing five or 600 students in a gym, it's a little bit harder to control sometimes, you know, depending upon if, if they're middle school kids or high school kids. You know, the elementary school kids were often the most eager to interact and, and attentive. Um, so as we kept doing that, we, got, we would get more and more support from the musicians doing it. It became a thing now where everybody does it. You know, it took maybe four or five years, but everybody would do it. You know, because it was a thing that became known when you came to play jazz at the bistro at the time, you also played in the community. You also shared with the students. That program has since developed into us putting the bands on stage at the venue and then bringing students in from school. So they will pay for busing. We'll give them lunch. We do it on Friday afternoons. They have an opportunity to experience the musicians in the in the musicians' natural environment in a show environment. The musicians have all their backline available to them. It's just like doing a show, and it is been just from watching the reactions of the students. It's more impactful to what they're experiencing because they're getting to come to a concert. Basically. Well, and they're they're also getting they're in an environment that's not a jazznasium. Exactly. To where it's built to focus on the music. It's not built to focus on two goals in the lines. Correct. So that that program did that in 2004. We wanted to start affecting students even more so than just bringing bands in there. And so we started a an all-star student ensemble where we would audition students. We started it with support from THF Realty. They uh, came in to do a small group the first year. We did two groups the next couple of years. And so we're talking about this and, and we're like, well, who's going to direct the band? It's like, well, I'm going to direct the band. It's like, I, I'm, I, if we're going to do this, I want to be the one to do that. And they're like, oh, okay. So they let me. We had a great couple of bands those first several years. I did it from 2004 to 2006. In 2006, we hired a director of education who would overtake that program, and we expanded it into featuring six to seven groups. So we wound up getting to a point where we would have anywhere between 125 and 150 students auditioning for about 60 slots in seven different groups. That's all, incredible. All directed by St. Louis-based jazz educators. So it really took off 
And out of that, we saw that there was a need for students at a younger level. We were hearing input from band directors at the high school level that students were coming to them and they weren't prepared. They didn't know basics or they didn't, you know, they had to go back and reteach. So we started Jazz Academy as a, a program for middle school students to where we would provide them with basic, you know, music instruction, jazz instruction, as well as assistance in, you know, maybe tutoring and other things. So it was an after school program to where by the time they got to high school, they were ready to go. And it, the band directors were not having to come back and teach them through some of the basic things that they didn't know. So it, it building kind of a feeder program, hopefully, into what would become Jazz U. We changed that, you know, no longer. So the Jazz St. Louis All-Stars turned into Jazz U, and that's one of the top groups there now. Um, so you've got Jazz Academy that addresses middle school students. You've got Jazz U, which addresses middle and high school students, just depending upon level. They all audition, and they're placed in groups corresponding to the level of, of uh, performance. We do uh, Webop which is partnered with Jazz at Lincoln Center for a kinder music program. Uh, we also have our Music Heals program, which we had worked with um, Washington University, Dr. David Gutman, uh, who is in the, uh, the Center for Neurofibromatosis at Children's Hospital, St. Louis, to build this program using jazz to help students with developmental delays. Mm -hmm. So all these things under the, our education program. So when people come to the club, and to the venue, they think of Jazz St. Louis as, okay, well, I'm coming to see this show, but they may not realize that as much as we do on stage, we're doing in education and outreach. Then we've got community outreach projects. We do our Jazz Speak series, which takes a, a more of a lecture approach, lecture followed by performance. We just did one last week with Oliver Nelson Jr. doing music of his father. Um, so, you know, we're doing performance, education, and community engagement. It sounds like Jazz St. Louis is so deeply vested in the community and enriching the community in, in so much more of a way and with so much more impact there than even it has with the concert series. Yeah, we're, I mean, it's, it's. I'll tell people a lot, it's like, look, as much as you think is happening up here, you really don't know what's going on. They may, they may not know. We are building up, you know, awareness of that program. But as you know, people see performance, they see artists, they know that's immediately what they gravitate towards. Yeah. You know, that's the flashy part of it. It's the flashy part of it, you know, but take a look at 125 students on a Friday afternoon in a club that are having a ball with... Uh, somebody like Stacy Kent, who was just here last week, that said it was this was one of the most touching things that she'd done. I mean, she was floored by this program. The students and her were interacting great. You've got Christian McBride in there getting everybody up dancing. Robert Glasper's in there interacting with these students. I I didn't have opportunities like that when I was in school no. to come and do and. I, I, the one thing I failed to mention, everything that I just mentioned outside of the Webot program is completely free to students. There's no cost to any student, to any educator, to any school. We, have, we will underwrite buses, them coming into uh, Jazz U and Jazz Academy. Those programs are completely free. We'll have our artists that are working not only in the club, but we'll have artists that come in on week-long education residencies and community residencies that will work with our students. There's no cost there either. I mean, obviously, you said that you, it started very grassroots for you, where you were literally taking the back line off the stage and going and putting it in, into a gymnasium. It must have been rewarding just being there and watching the kids interacting with it. 
from the from the beginning. Otherwise, I can't imagine it growing into what it has now with the kind of effort that it's taken to build it to what it is now. Yeah, the the and the organization has grown. I mean, I and I'll I'll you know I won't take credit for growing the education programs. I mean, I was the first person to direct those bands, but our education staff has really taken that into a into another level and grown that program to have all of these things going on. So, you know, we've, we we're very fortunate to have some great people that have helped us along the way. Well, and jazz St. Louis as an overall organization has grown as a result as well. Yes. Yes. So you also have the role of artistic director. What does the role of artistic director in an organization like jazz St. Louis involve? The, the biggest thing and what most people are going to see with that is booking, you know, so programming, that's all me. Long-term artistic planning, um, budgeting, you know, so at least for us, you know, I'm budgeting all of these performances, not just booking and not just, you know, going saying, well, let's go get this artist. I've got to figure out what that's going to look like, you know, so there's more, it's almost more budgeting than booking, really. Mm-hmm. On the operations side that you mentioned, the only thing we didn't mention is I'm largely responsible for overseeing the building. Mm. So typically you would have, <laughs> you don't have the same person booking the bands, doing the budgeting and fixing the toilet. But if that needs to happen, I will do that. The artistic for us, I'm advancing shows as well with my team. But the, but a large, a, the large majority of it is, is booking, budgeting and artistic planning. You know, we're trying to plan out three to five years, look and see what's coming down the road, see how we're going to get there, see what kind of unique partnerships we can develop. And I do that with our community, uh, our, our uh, director of community engagement, who is also our director of education, you know, so we can look at things and, and we'll talk to other collaborators. You know, we've, we did uh, a couple operas with Opera Theater St. Louis with Terrence Blanchard, became the first black composer to have an opera premiered at the, at the Metropolitan uh, Opera in New York. So that's been a big thing for us. So we're also involved in in some of those things. As artistic director with the booking, how do you how do you decide how do you land on from a conceptual standpoint for what you want Jazz St. Louis to be? How do you land on what artists you're going to bring in, what what genres within micro genres within jazz you're going to look at and bring in and focus on throughout a season? How does that all work for you? I want good music. People are like, "Well, how, what is your concept or what is your I, said, I want good music." First and foremost, that's what we do. We want good music. Beyond that, there will be a focus on building new artists. It'll be spread across new artists, established artists, maybe uh, artists of, uh, of a stature that we haven't been able to get before. You know, uh, uh, somebody like, for example, uh, Brantford Marsalis. It took me 15 years to finally get Brantford Marsalis in the club. But in terms of, st- you'll also look across the, the year and make sure you've got some things that are going to hit newer audiences, more traditional audiences. You'll have some piano trio stuff. You'll have some vocal stuff. You'll have stuff that is going to hit people who are wanting to come in for something that is more maybe more fusion or electronically driven or something like the Yellow Jackets. A balance so that you've got something for everybody. You know, you can come in over the course of a couple months and you'll see the Yellow Jackets, Harold Lopez Nusa, Jane Monheit, John Pizzarelli, the Jazz St. Louis Big Band doing Ellington's Nutcracker, the Bad Plus, Grace Kelly. Those are all hitting very different audiences. So you want to make sure to have it spread out so you're not focusing on one core audience, but just bringing something in for everybody. We are different than most clubs in that we run our 
programming in a subscription series like a PAC does. Mm-hmm. That allows me to do a lot of things that I would not be able to do if I just relied on single ticket sales alone. Yeah. So that's that lets me bring in somebody that people aren't familiar with. You know, we had Roosevelt Collier in, you know, about a year and a half ago. That's not somebody that would typically play the club, but I've got a subscription audience and they trust us in programming. So I can debut artists and before single tickets go on sale, I'll have anywhere from 425 to 600 tickets sold for the course of five nights. Mm-hmm. So that, that helps us do a lot of things that we normally could not do. We want people to have, we, we're selling an experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just a ticket to a show. It's an entire experience. There's something about hearing jazz music in a 200-seat club that is different from hearing it in a five or 1,000-seat theater you know, in a larger space, there's an intimacy to coming to hear the music in a club setting. For me, that that's the ultimate setting to hear it in. I mean, there are artists out there that you'll never see in a club. Yeah. And that's unfortunate for me. I mean, you could have seen them in a club 40 years ago, maybe. But it is there's an intimacy between the artist and the audience that you don't get anyplace else. So that is an additional thing that we have going for us. Well, and the club the is where, where the entire genre started and grew and, and was curated. That type of music is, is a communication and it is a conversation that's being had. And you're a part of it when you're in a club. And when you're in a giant hall, you're not a part of it in the same way. It's the, the no. intimacy has gone, like you were saying. No, and, it's still a great performance. Yeah. But there, but there, I do, I do have a, a little bit of an advantage, and that we have a, a just we're able to create a very unique experience for the listener and yeah. for the patron, and that's true to the to the history and origins of the art form itself. Correct, and that's what's in my mind. That's what's so important and beautiful about a, a jazz club like that is that it really gives you that original experience that it's meant to have for jazz. Yeah. I'd like to take you back in time. I want to take you to right after your conversation with the professor at uh, SIU Edwardsville. What specific advice you would have for yourself about the industry at that time? Well, at that time, I was looking to be a performer. At that time, I would say you can't. It's just like uh, I'm a big bourbon fan. You can't rush quality. You can't rush this. There's you have to put in the work. You know, people hear about musicians practicing for four, six, eight hours a day. There's a reason that those things are happening at that time in their lives and developmental. It's like, you've got to do it. If you don't do it, you're not going to get to where you want to go. So putting in the work and the effort, you know, and that goes for the same thing, just coming into it on a, on a presenting side. If you're looking to get into this, put in the time. It's the same thing I tell musicians now. It's often to me... The most important part of the gig happens after the band's done playing. Hang. The hang is gone. But there's so much trust that you pick up with the performers and the staff and the people. Get to know the people who are, who are responsible for executing the performances. I'm not talking about the people who are booking them. I'm talking about stagehands, you know, sound people. The people in the, that nobody you're talking to, you know, folks who are cleaning up after everybody's gone, because those are that's the that's the heart and soul of whatever institution you're at, whatever mm-hmm. venue you're at. So hang, get to know those people, listen. If you get into a, a situation where 
you're in a you're with a group of musicians and and these are idols of yours. Just listen, sit there and listen. Especially if they're if they're older musicians, you know, who have been around for. I mean, you can just sit there and absorb so much, and there is there's nothing that can replace the amount of knowledge that you'll pick up just listening to that stuff. I think listening is such great advice, and and the importance of the hang, and that's that's something that's from an industry standpoint is important, not just in a club, but at the conferences and mm-hmm. at the, and at networking gatherings, the hang is so important. I mean, that's where you and I met. That's how you build. I mean, I, I haven't gone to the conferences in a while, I, but I did for years and I built those relationships to where I still have them. Um, but absolutely, especially younger people, mm-hmm. you know, who are just coming into this, those relationships are going to help you secure the things that you're looking to do as you move in your career as you move forward and past past just the relationships the stories that are told at these hangs there's so much to gain from because the stories aren't being told because it's what happens every time but the stories are being told because of something that's happened that was either great or really bad and there's so much to learn from hearing that story in either direction the the other thing i would say is that especially for young people getting involved in either artistic administration or booking, setting realistic expectations for what you're going to be able to do. Because coming into, when I first came into it, I'm like, okay, let's book this person, this person, this person, this person. They're great. It ta- unfortunately, you, we cannot book solely based upon, you know, we've got a great musician. So how are we going to get them? You know, that's, that's good to, to dry. I mean, you want to, book all great musicians, but there's so much additional stuff that, that you don't realize until you get into it and get in the weeds a little bit about just what is driving decisions in terms of artistic direction and making sure that you, you know, because yeah, it is a not, we're, we're all not profit organizations, but that doesn't mean that everybody's just got a pile of money sitting over there yeah. that they can burn through. Not-for-profit doesn't mean we're going to lose money as much as we can. Exactly. And, and that's, that's a misconception that a lot of people have coming into this line of work. It's like, well, we're nonprofits, so don't worry about it. Just, the, well, where does the money come from? Well, I don't know, but we're nonprofits. Like, no, it's we. You've got we've got to figure out, and it's got to be balanced. Yeah, funding is important. Funding is incredibly important, and and know the people that are in development for those that are in nonprofits that are that are responsible for generating the the contributed revenue that allow us to remain employed. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, that was a that was a big eye-opening thing coming in when I first got started. It's like, wow, okay, so you can't just go and book this, 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 and this. You know, there are there are a lot of other things at work that make those decisions possible. So being becoming aware of that, the earlier you can become aware of that and realize it is incredibly beneficial. So one last question for you. What is your favorite thing about being part of this industry? You know, for 60, 90 minutes, an hour and 20, however long it is, we are able to provide people a way to escape problems, concerns, worries. Somebody sitting in that seat, they are completely removed from everything else that's going on and they can, you know, have a a joyful experience right there. So being able to give people that, especially now, being able to provide folks with a way to escape and just enjoy high quality entertainment, that's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's great. The, the relationships that I have with musicians, I 
I mean, that's incredible. I'd, I'd say those two things, yeah. the, the relationships and being able to provide people a way to just drop everything and enjoy something for a little bit and forget all the other things. Bob, thank you so much for sitting down with us, giving us your time, giving us an amazing amount of knowledge and wisdom in the industry and, and specifically in jazz presenting and, and what that means. And more drilled down the way that you guys give back to the community, which is so incredibly important. So thank you so much. I appreciate you all having me. Thanks so much for doing this. Josh, I love that conversation. It was uh, really enjoyable overall. I had a lot of great tidbits that that I learned from, but I especially love the bonding over red sauce and Italian food. Really felt that one. I love that. I just love that moment, uh, the like artist relations moment that Bob was talking about there, trying to figure out what to fill the fridge with in the apartment. <laughs> As a former artist relations manager myself, it just warmed <laughs> my heart to know that I'm not the only person who's gone, what do I feed this person um, when they're coming to do a show? Um, but I, I appreciated that story so much. And I love the conversation about bonding with artists and having that experience and, and, um, eating and drinking with them and building those relationships. I just, um, I've had similar experiences myself and I, I really loved that. So thanks to Bob for sharing about that. Amen to that. And I also really loved just right off the bat, hearing the arts and economic prosperity, um, like reasons why we should support the arts, not just for personal fulfillment and Amen. enjoyment, mm -hmm. but you know, if the theaters downtown don't have a show, then the restaurants don't have business. And that's sort of how they transitioned to the jazz space that they're in now. But like, we cannot stress enough how important the arts and the arts sector is to the economic prosperity of our towns and of our states. Yeah, I mean, it is truly driving the economy. I think what I appreciated most about this conversation is the longevity of his time with Jazz St. Louis. I mean, just being there for a time of massive growth and just recognizing the vision that that takes and just the time that it truly takes to accomplish something like that. We have a tendency in this industry, and I think maybe just as people as a whole, to you know sort of celebrate the overnight success and not realizing that it takes you know, 15, 20 years um, to actually bring those visions to fruition. Looking at his organization, it's gone from two, two staff members to 14 full-time staff members. I have to give him kudos, too, for making educational outreach as part of the contract. I believe we all do that now, but that's something that is actually fairly new in the industry. A lot of older contracts, I look at them, you know, I'm in a 30-year-plus institution here, and some of them, they they would book the show, and then they would work out after the contracts are done, the educational outreach stuff. And I'm really glad that that's changed. But it sounds like Bob had been doing that from early on before that was a common practice. So I have to give him kudos for that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And transitioning from the, which, what did he call it, the jazzatorium or the jazznasium, <laughs> jazznasium, thank you. Transitioning the the format of that program to give students a different experience. I really loved the intentionality behind that. And I think it is incredibly valuable to bring students into a space that is truly meant for that sort of performance. They're going to get a completely different um, view of what that is and experience and understanding of the art form. And so I really love that transition and just how they've grown those education programs over the course of the years. Like 
so impressive. Want to talk to his development team about how they raise all that money uh, and get sponsors and that sort of thing to fund all of that and make it completely free, right? Access is clearly at the core of the mission of that education programming. And yeah, would love to learn more about that in the future. What really stuck out to me in that conversation about education was that the programs developed because of a community need. They weren't just saying, you know what would be really great. You know, they were hearing from, you know, high school band teachers about how kids weren't prepared. And so they were like, you know what, we'll do that. So much of this is just led by the community and what the community wants and what the community is responding to. And I think that that makes all the difference. I also want to acknowledge how, because um, the club nature is not normally like this, but how he, he has a season with season subscribers. And now my program has a, has a subscription series as well. And it's really hard to build that in the first place. But once you have that, like he mentioned, you have, you've built trust with your audience members, your patrons, and and then you could take chances and risks and they'll be happy to go along with you. And that's such a great thing to have. It just speaks to the quality of work that he did in the early days to get that kind of rapport with his audience. One thing that I found interesting is that talking about like how he got into the business, he went to a professor and like he at that point knew that a performer wasn't his place in the industry, but he wanted to be a part of it. And the only recommendation that the university had for him was to become a college instructor. He found his place in arts administration as a side effect of him loving the craft so much. I love that he found it, but there's got to be a better way for us to get talent into the industry of arts administration. I mean, I fell into it as well. Like my story isn't the same as Bob's, but I didn't really know what someone in, in the role as an executive director did until I found myself within an organization that without a lot of leadership and just started stepping into the role myself. And then I learned it and found out about Same. it. Yeah, I think this I think this speaks to a couple of different things. Like one, just the amount of things that you can do with sort of any education in the arts. I mean, that he went to school for performance, but it, it led to a bunch of different things. And we see that all the time with people who get into one side of the industry and eventually make it to another side of that. But also we are sort of seeing that change. I mean, more colleges and universities are having programs like centered around arts administration. Um, but also, I mean, just recognizing that you don't necessarily need just an arts admin degree. Like this is business. I mean, it is the basics of business. My, my degree is in, is in accounting and uh, a master's of business administration with finance. I mean, the arts admin side of things or like the arts side of things I learned on the job. I participate in a program here in Midland County through the the public school systems where it's a eighth grade career program, essentially. So I just upcoming this week, I will go and give a round of presentations to eighth graders about what it is that I do and what is the arts and entertainment industry and what are all the different roles that you could have. So I talk to them about not only what I do and what we can do in theater and music and dance and performing arts and that sort of thing, but visual arts, journalism, photography, um, podcasting, film, television, and then all the support that's needed, right? Talking about finance and and the business admin side, HR, um, IT, all of those different things. So if, if students have a passion for the arts, but they don't want to be a performer, I try and give them a really wide view of all the different parts of the arts and entertainment industry that they could potentially pursue. While it takes a huge chunk out of my day several times a year to go to middle schools around the region and, and give these presentations, um, it's one thing that I can do or we can do as arts professionals is participate in those sorts of programs through our school systems to 
put those ideas in front of students from an earlier age. We ourselves as arts administrators can help sort of with this pipeline information flow issue with students when they're younger. I also love how he talked about the after show hang. And I didn't realize where he was going with that, but he's right. When he said the production folks are the heart and soul of the venue, he is so right. And um, and it is important to hang. I, I've had those hangs with those folks as well. And I'll often, you know, take off my suit jacket and roll up my sleeves and help, you know, alongside if they don't mind. Of course, you know, I never want to step on their toes if if uh, ever get in their way but it's it's really a valuable experience and I, I suggest anyone that has that opportunity to do that and I know that they they appreciate it too when that plays back into the the whole part about you can't rush any of this right I mean he's been there for I, I think we just referenced 20 years I mean you to build that subscriber base I mean that takes time and uh, to build those relationships takes time and you can't just rush through it you can't just check off uh, I did the hang um, cause that's, you know, that's not what it's about. Well, and if the hang isn't a, a thing that's naturally happening and you're forcing it, um, and then just doing it once or twice, um, if it's not from a genuine place, then it, it's worthless anyway. Well, thank you guys for joining me today and, and chatting about Bob's interview and listening to it with us. I love sitting down with him and Bob, thank you for sitting down with me. We'll catch you next time on There's No Business Like All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? (laughs) I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. Did you see that text, Brian? You need to look yeah. in the group. Oh, I have unread messages. I fired you. I, I have unread messages. How long ago was this? Just before the podcast. It was my response to you being 10 minutes late. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I do not approve. <laughs> Did you try Lafroig? Yeah. I feel like, I, was I there? Yeah, it yeah. was your it was your <laughs> glass you let me try. <laughs> and yes, I tasted you were there. the campfire for like an hour afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird that I wouldn't remember that. <laughs> I think I was there. Was I there for that? Yep, you were yes. there. I was. There. All of us were there. And you were there? <laughs> Actually, it was just <laughs> it was just Katie and Kevin and I at that. Was point. that when you guys went to get oh, the cupcakes? Okay. No, no, we were waiting we for the PA to, presenters yeah. in Michigan. Oh, that's when it was. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was like, At I remember this, but where, where and, were And we? I hadn't gotten down there yet. Yeah. That was yeah, fun. Yeah, you and Danielle right. weren't there yet. You were yeah. on your way. Being there from a time that the organization, you know, has gone through some math of... At a time that the organization has I gone thought, through... Cat. <laughs> I was trying to let, I was going to laugh too, but I was letting him get through it. But oh well, too late. Don't hold back your laugh, Brian. <laughs> You're right. Touche. Yeah. I think the best thing about Benson's Inns is that now, like when we hang out with people, they know what kind of uh, drinks we like and, and what our, chicken. Uh, handheld chicken preferences are. <laughs> like so they, they could buy us dinner and us. drinks. <laughs>
Thank you for bringing us food and alcohol. That's actually our evil plan. Is that? <laughs> Next week we'll be talking dessert <laughs> and side dishes. I wish I can go back and change mine then because I don't feel like ripping a bird open with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> only at only at the uh, show. They're gonna bring Brian and uh, a rotisserie uncooked chicken. bird, <laughs> and no utensils. He has to himself, and then they'll take it back and cook it. We probably should talk about fry shape at some point. I think now all that these time. questions. Like I'm, I'm like yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. <laughs>